If you enjoy the harrowing of Minerva Damson and want to join the Order of Joan in their fight against the monsters stalking the trenches, there are several ways you can support the war effort. Find us on Patreon and enlist, or donate to the Order on Acast. You can also connect with Order Headquarters via Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Links can be found in our bio. The Harrowing of Minerva Damson is a horror podcast and contains descriptions of war that some may find graphic or disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Jessica Linkhart, creator of The Harrowing of Minerva Damson, and welcome to our first ever question and answer session. I'd like to give a huge thank you to all the people who asked us questions on our social media, and also to all our listeners out there, new and returning, for giving this podcast a chance. It has just been so exciting watching our little seedling of a podcast grow. And if you want to help us continue to grow, you can rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, review us on Podchaser, follow us on social media or your favorite podcasting platform, or recommend us to other listeners who might like our work. Believe me, those endorsements help us a lot. So without further ado, let's jump into our questions. Claire Brown Bear on Instagram asked, How do you decide on names for your characters? Well, I'm always on the lookout for interesting names, and I'm a huge believer in the power of names. For background characters, I tend to just slap a name on them and go, but for most of my main characters, I choose first names that reflect some defining aspect of their character, or sometimes contradicts it. In Minnie's case, she's named after the goddess Minerva, who, among other things, was the patron of wisdom, justice, and defensive war. It's a bit on the nose, but what can I say? I like it. Last names can carry a lot of meaning too, so I sometimes fuss over those, but not as often as I do with first names. Results with Behave on Instagram asked, What was the inspiration for Minnie? 
Specifically, Results with Behave goes on to say that as a professional woman working in a male-dominated field, she really resonated with Minnie's experiences. That's not an accident, really, as Minnie, and by extension the whole order, is inspired by stories I've heard from and about women in my family. The concept for the order was informed by a lot of things, but one of the main ones was a longing to see a highly publicly visible institution led by women who beat the odds set against them, gained power, and wielded it through history, and specifically a type of power that exists outside of the historical and traditional feminine ideal. Now, Minnie as a character was directly inspired by a combination of stories passed down in my own family and my love for characters like Miss Fisher from Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries and Peggy Carter. All these women were short on time, long on to-dos, and plowed right through any obstacles between them and the job they needed to do. Results with Behave also asked, What was the inspiration to change some things in the course of history, like women being allowed in combat, but not others? This is a really interesting question that dives into the deeper structures of the ordinal alternate timeline. The short answer is it depends on the root of the issue. It's important to keep in mind that if something occurred after 1431 in our history, there's a good chance it has changed in the ordinal timeline in one way or another. Racism, for instance, is not as virulent an issue in the ordinal timeline. Why? Because our modern concept of race is rooted in anti-blackness, which in turn evolved and became systemic during the aggressive colonization of Africa from the 17th century onward. In this alternate timeline, Africa repelled European attempts to colonize it, which means the transatlantic slave trade never developed and the American Civil War never happened, among many other things. This is one example of larger changes that exist in the setting's background, but that the eye of the story does not necessarily highlight because of the immediacy of the action and the perspective of our viewpoint character. Why, then, does misogyny still exist? Why does classism or ableism or imperialism? In short, because these issues have much deeper roots, going back for millennia, and to try to pull them out completely would change the course of human history in radically transformative ways hard to imagine or predict, which would be an interesting story in itself, but it isn't the one I wrote. So while the Knights of the Order have managed to gain some power and autonomy for the women in their ranks, they are the exception to the general rules, and they still contend with misogyny. Their status does not come without a steep social price. I just wanted to quickly say that I did not set out to create a world free of injustice or atrocity. Humans are complicated, messy creatures capable of both truly altruistic and horribly heinous things, and history reflects that complexity. I'm not sure there is any version of history that is perfectly morally just, putting aside questions of who exactly gets to determine what perfect morality is. And if there is one, I'm not sure the people populating it would be humans as we know ourselves to be. Now, I know that some of these topics are contentious, and I'm human and fallible and always learning, so I'll undoubtedly fail in some ways. Yet I do hope that if nothing else, I succeed in at least prompting a deeper conversation about some of these topics. Our patron Katie asked, What is the meaning behind the Order of Jones seal? So, remember, the Order of Joan formed in response to the unjust burning of Joan of Arc, and that fact is reflected strongly in the Order's crest. 
The crest features a sword and lily crossed and wreathed in fire, with the words, Justice does not burn, it lights the way, around them. The lily is the traditional symbol of France, and the sword for courage and martial skill. The fire represents the flames that burned Joan of Arc, and the words are a direct rebuttal to the ruling of the court that sent Joan to her gruesome death. The order decided upon this motto before the church issued them the edict to remove the monsters of Europe, so for quite some time the motto and the order's function seemed out of step. However, as the order's mission evolved over time into one of the protection of magic practitioners and non-practitioners alike, the motto became more directly applicable. As with all institutions, particularly those that get wrapped up in the dispensation of justice, there is tension between the ideals of the order and its realities. The order's greatest strength lies in its collaborative approach within its ranks and with the communities it serves. It is weakest when it becomes punitive and callous. Whether it is living up to its noblest potential depends on the time, place, and people involved at any given post. Because of its founding principles, however, the order has always been a progressive institute, and typically embodies its better ideals more often than not. Our patron Sharon asked, What kinds of training do knights receive? Well, a knight's training varies greatly depending on period of history and location, but some generalizations might be made. Previous to their admission to the order, prospective knights undergo rigorous physical training and conditioning. They're typically trained in the melee and ranged weapons most commonly available in their time and place, and they're also taught basic hand-to-hand -hand combat skills. They're tested for physical strength and endurance, and also for their resourcefulness and ability to think on their feet. In addition to physical training, they're also required to learn basic magic theory and counter-magic strategies. This early training can last anywhere between six months to a year. Prospective initiates are then tested, and those that pass become squires, or sometimes initiates to the Order of Catherine if they fail the physical exams but excel in the academic portions, or simply express more interest in research and development. Upon acceptance into the Order, squires' physical training intensifies, and they begin assisting knights with their daily activities. While shadowing knights, squires learn local lore, the ins and outs of order jurisdiction, and the finer points of interacting with key groups in their community. Squires are also given greater access to the order archives, and are tested regularly on their knowledge of intermediate magic theory and counter-magic strategies, as well as magical entities and how best to handle them in the field. After a year of this training, and barring any incident that would merit expulsion, Squires graduate to Knight Maidens of the Second Order and become fully initiated into the knighthood. Our patron Sharon also asked, Are knights expected to be celibate? Can they get married? This is a great question. So, there are three distinct periods in Order history regarding celibacy and marriage. The first two generations of Knights of the Order following the death of Joan of Arc were celibate. They were much closer to their ecclesiastical roots then, and wished to honor that tradition and Joan of Arc's own famous maidenhood. But as their numbers grew and their organization spread, this changed for a number of reasons. Women from all walks of life entered the order. Some were already married, sometimes to liberally-minded husbands, sometimes to absent husbands, and sometimes to disabled husbands who could no longer work. 
Some were widowed and exceptionally skilled in their previous husband's trade, many of which were useful to the order, but these women were often already sexually active with no intention of curbing their passions. And some women entered the order as chaste maidens or widows, but eventually found love. While many women left the order upon marriage, many others wished to continue their service. For a few decades, the order made concessions for married couples, but continued to encourage celibacy outside of marriage. Ultimately, though, the simple fact was that there was no real way of discouraging sexual activity or enforcing celibacy within their ranks. As monster hunters, their knights often traveled away from their home posts on missions, and it was nigh impossible to prevent women from taking lovers on the road if they wished to. Around the time the order began loosening its ties to the church, all policies regarding celibacy, which were already largely defunct, were finally dropped. Knights in the order have enjoyed great sexual freedom for centuries, whether married or unmarried. I'd also like to point out something that was said in Dirt Nap, which was the second episode of our first season. Minnie's father mentions that the order is a notorious refuge for sapphists. He's correct. The order quickly became a safe haven for sapphic women, and indeed, many women found love and formed lifelong partnerships within the order. By the 17th century, same-sex relationships were respected within the order and treated as marriages, and couples were given benefits and inheritance rights should one partner perish in the line of duty. In addition to the order's acknowledgement and acceptance of sapphic women, it has long accepted people that today might identify as trans, treating them with dignity and granting them equal rights within the order's purview as well. Of course, these liberties so widely enjoyed within the order's walls throughout history were seldom flaunted outside of them. There has always been, as we all know, very real danger in that with very real consequences. But these freedoms and rights were granted nonetheless, albeit quietly, and enabled its members to live a fuller life because of it. Well, there you have it. That's it for our first Q&A session. We had some truly excellent questions posed, and I hope that these answers proved satisfying, or at the very least, intriguing. If you have a question for us, go ahead and shoot us a message, or leave us a comment on Instagram or Twitter. We'll happily jot it down on our list to be answered in our next Q&A session. We're also working on something very special for our Maiden Tier patrons. An interseason mini-arc following another knight and her harrowing tale, this one set in the Belgian Aldun during the autumn of 1915. Watch for more information on that in the coming weeks. And remember, if you've enjoyed the show and want to support us, please remember to rate, follow, and recommend us. It really helps. And with that, I wish you fair travels, Knight. Until next time. The Harrowing of Minerva Damson and its related stories are written, narrated, and produced by Jessica Linkhart, and features additional voice work by Miranda Lewis, Claire Miller, and Jamie Sykes. Art assets done in collaboration with Mitch Lewis. Thank you for listening. Our tale will continue next week. <laughs>